This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Hello, and welcome to Tuesday's episode. Did you know the Mom Room Podcast is now one year and five days old, or 12 months, five days old? Thank you so much for all your support, for listening to the episodes, for rating, reviewing, subscribing, all the things, following the Mom Room Podcast on Instagram, following me, all that stuff just helps grow the show. And I am so grateful because I love doing this podcast. I'm so happy that, you know, I get so many messages from people telling me how much value they get from these conversations and, you know, their feelings are validated, their emotions. They, you know, start conversations with their friends about these different topics or their partner. I just love hearing those stories. So keep that coming. On Thursday's episode, the one year anniversary episode, I was trying to list off episodes that I thought were really valuable. And I literally could have said almost any episode. That's how awesome I think this catalog of podcast episodes are. So today's episode is in that category as well. We are talking all about hormones and women's health with Dr. Aviva Ram. Her story is so impressive. If you go to her website, avivaram.com, you can read her history and her education and a little bit about her life story. And it is fascinating. I told her it should be a movie and I honestly believe that. She is a medical doctor. She's a midwife and a herbalist. And what is so nice about that combination of things is that she looks at healthcare from both perspectives. So a holistic, but also a medical, like Western medical perspective, but then the holistic side of it as well. We had such a good conversation about advocating for your own health when you visit a doctor. I love that conversation because it is so important. And I think so many times we go to the doctor's office and we feel uncomfortable or unprepared or like we're being rushed through the appointment. So we don't always get out of the appointment what we had initially hoped to get out of it. So that is a really important conversation and topic that needs to be talked about. Her stats and research that she shares with us about women's health when it comes to hormone imbalances and, you know, gynecologic issues that women seek help for is shocking. We also talk a little bit about infertility. And I asked her, you know, at my age, I'm 36 now, I feel like I hear about infertility so much and it's so common. I feel like I know more people who have gone through fertility treatments than have not, which is wild if you think about it. And so I asked her, like, is this because of my age and people around me are older or has infertility actually increased over the last few years? And she gives a great answer. She talks about, you know, things in our environment that are hormone disruptors. And now I want to go through my house and get rid of all the things that are highly fragranced and 
that is how I used to live my life. I was very much all about like clean eating and clean products, but somewhere along the way, I just got really busy and stopped caring about it. And I wanted my sheets to smell good more so than knowing that I was using clean ingredients. But I think I'm going to get back on that bandwagon. It's going to be hard to get my husband on board because he likes things to smell nice. You know, when you pull something out of the dryer and it just has this beautiful smell and it's all soft from the fabric softener, but we need to find a natural option because those are hormone disruptors. And when you're constantly surrounded by things like that, like heavy duty fragrances, chemicals on food, like it all adds up and causes these problems. I know you guys are going to get so much value out of this episode. Feel free to take out a pad of paper and a pen and jot down some notes or, you know, write down some things that you want to look into further. Dr. Rom also just released a book called Hormone Intelligence, where she goes in depth into all of these topics that we're chatting about today. So highly recommend that. Check out her website, check her out on Instagram, really, really great information that she is constantly sharing and conversations that she's bringing to the table for women's health. And hormones are such a big topic that I find they're not talked about enough. Considering how much they affect our lives and our health, I remember when I was pregnant with Milo, every single thing that I went to Google, like an ailment that I had, had to do with hormones. It was like, oh yeah, that's probably from hormones. Oh yeah, that's hormones. Oh yeah, that's hormones. And it's like, how are we not talking about hormones more? And why are we not more educated in this area? So I'm really happy that people like Dr. Rom are in this world and spreading this message and giving us all this valuable information. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Aviva Rom. You are a medical doctor, a midwife, a herbalist, and you have four kids. So I couldn't let this interview go on without asking you just to tell us a little bit about your story and I guess the order in which all those things came. Long story short, it's a long story, but I grew up in New York City, actually in a housing project with a single mom sharing a bunk bed with my brother till I was 14. And I was in a school in New York City that's very famous. It's a public school, but you have to test into it. So it's like a very science geeky school. So when I was 14, I wrote a letter to Johns Hopkins University and asked them if they would take me early admissions, not to college, to the medical school. It's like ninth grade. I'm just going to skip it all and just go right into medical school because I know what I want to do. It's so funny. I was so self-assured. It's just like, in retrospect, I laugh about that. But actually, someone wrote me back. And keep in mind, this was a letter that you had to put a stamp on and lick and put in the mail. And then someone had to open it and read it and write you back or type it back and send a letter back. This was in 1980, right? So somebody did. Someone actually wrote a letter back and said, we can't take you to medical school. You have to go to college first and you're too young for the college, you know, early admission. You do have to at least go to high school first, they, or at least some of it. And But there's this school in Massachusetts, ironically, two towns over from where I now live and have settled, but they take gifted and talented kids. So I applied and I got a scholarship. And so September, three months after I turned 15, I was off to college. And within a couple of months, I got exposed to, I'll just jokingly say, but kind of sort of really liberal hippiedom. And I was like, by then, you know, 
wearing Birkenstocks and then Chinese slippers because I wasn't going to wear anything with leather, went vegan, grew dreadlocks. I mean, it was just like a thing. I, I learned how to like forage and about plant medicine and I got exposed to midwifery, like all in this three month period. So I finished my first year there, but then by the end of my first year, now keep in mind, there was no naturopathic medicine in the United States yet. Last year hadn't even opened up its first class, the big naturopathic college, alternative medicine, integrated These were not terms that existed yet. So for me to study this stuff, I had to dig in like old bookstores with weird arcane books. And I found like three herb books, two from Europe, one from the United States, old, old books. And this is what I'm studying. And I found a midwife to apprentice with. And I started pestering herbalists around the country who were themselves either self-taught or taught by like some First Nations person on an island off the coast of, you know, Western British Columbia, this kind of thing. But Ultimately, I did. I looked, This is what I put together as my education. I left college behind, apprenticed to be a midwife, became an herbalist, and started practicing. Then in that time, I had my own four kids. Then I started writing books because I was saying the same things over and over and over to my midwifery clients. You know, they'd all ask me about natural baby care, or they'd all ask me about vaccinations, or they'd all ask me natural pregnancy questions. And at some point, I was just like, I should write all this down, and I did, and I called a publisher, kind of the way I wrote to Johns Hopkins, I called a publisher, I called three, in fact, and two wanted to publish my books, and so I had to get a computer to type them up, and I did, and all this while I was homeschooling my kids, so ultimately I published these books, kept practicing midwifery, became pretty well known as an herbalist also, and a midwife, ran the National Herbal Organization in the United States for over a decade, and wrote a textbook, and then ultimately was like, all right, I really still want to be a physician, and also keep in mind the herbal medicine and all of that, eating healthy, was still pretty fringe at that time. So I thought, all right, I'm going to go to medical school and be a bridge between these two worlds. And I did. I went to Yale, got my MD, did my internship in internal medicine at Yale, but really wanted to keep doing the pediatrics and the pregnancy and birth, prenatal care, all of that. And you don't really do that in internal medicine. So I switched over to family medicine where you do all of it and finished my residency at Tufts. Then I midwifed two of my grandbabies at home. And all this time I've been you know, practicing and writing and teaching. And yeah, my kids are grown now. They're, the youngest is 27. The oldest is turning 36 this week. So it's been a journey. I'm 36. So <laughs> I love that. That's such a amazing story. Like you've accomplished so much. And I saw that you have a bunch of books, but your newest book is called Hormone Intelligence. Can you explain what hormone intelligence means? Yeah. So I, I've increasingly found myself saying it's a noun and it's a verb. The noun is this innate natural blueprint that we've had since time immemorial, right? Women have basically come of age. We start menstruating. Our hormones all do something very similar in each of us, no matter where we are, what culture we're in, what era we're in. We menstruate, you know, our cycles do something really similar every month. And that cyclic nature is tied into actual nature. It's tied into seasons and cycles. And so to me, that hormonal blueprint is our innate hormone intelligence. The verb, the action part of it is how do we live in harmony with that? Because 
in the last 50 years or so, and especially in the last couple of decades, the number of hormone problems that women have had and gynecologic problems like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis or fertility challenges or even severe PMS that actually is so bad it can impact a woman's career and economics because she's missing work or schooling has really been escalating to the point where it truly is what I call a hidden hormone epidemic. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why is this happening? If we have this natural blueprint that hasn't changed in time immemorial, basically since we've been humans on the planet, why is this happening? And so hormone intelligence is getting literate, getting body literate, getting hormonally literate and understanding what our bodies are doing. And it's also, how do we live in harmony with that so that we can reclaim that natural blueprint and feel more comfortable in our bodies? So that's what I was going to ask you, because being my age now, so many people around me are pregnant or having kids. And I feel like I hear about infertility so much, but I wasn't sure if it's just because of my age that I'm hearing about it so much, or has it actually increased over the last little while? It has increased. Both male and female infertility has increased. In fact, male has really significantly increased too. But yes, so we know that several things are happening. One is, to some extent, a function of age, because as we put off, I mean, think about it, right, historically, and I'm talking like Paleolithic times, girls got pregnant at 14, 15, 16, and that was considered a normal biological time to have babies. So, you know, in our 30s, if our lifespan back then might have been 45 or 50, it is having, you know, biologically babies at an older age. Now, I mean, 36 is the new what 36 is the new 20 basically right it's not old by any means and we're still quite fertile but we do know that the longer you put off childbearing the longer it may be a little bit more difficult to get pregnant or a lot more difficult to get pregnant so once you get to a certain age and your friends are starting to have babies if they're the same age you may hear more stories of infertility the other thing that happens when you get to be 35 and over is that the doctor's threshold of telling you that you have a fertility problem goes down. So if you're in your 20s and it's taking you a year to get pregnant, there's no big fuss about it. I mean, somebody might mention fertility treatments and I know lots of people who have had that happen to them even in their 20s. But once you get to be 35 and over, you know, three months of not getting pregnant, pregnant, six months of not getting pregnant, your doctor is going to refer you to um, a reproductive endocrinologist. And so you're going to get labeled at that point as having fertility challenges. Whereas truthfully, actually, most people who wait one to two years will ultimately naturally get pregnant. But when you're 36 and someone's telling you, tick-tock, 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 you know, and you gotta have your baby and your friends are having their babies and somebody's saying, you know, go to the doctor because there could be a problem, it becomes harder to have the patience and confidence to wait that extra bit of time. But we do know a lot of what's going on with environmental endocrine disruptors, especially has been impacting fertility. So more women will spend longer getting pregnant now than historically. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. 
The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, you are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. Something I was looking at on your website was the cycle. And it's funny because, well, I was on birth control for a long time. And then now that I'm off of birth control, I really notice my cycle and how different things can get throughout the cycle. And that's all hormones. And so I was looking at one of your blog posts on your website about kind of like living with your cycle. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, so it first came to my attention when I was actually about 17 years old. I had a wonderful mentor who was a midwife and an herbalist, also a Shoshone medicine woman, actually. I don't know if she would call herself a shaman, but she was a shaman and a healer and a teacher. And at that point, I was already paying attention and tracking my menstrual cycle. I got kind of an early start on this stuff. And so she taught me to start paying attention to things like, what foods am I craving? What colors am I wearing? And it was bizarre. Once I started paying attention, I'd noticed that every time, like right before my period would start, I would grab out this red sweater that my grandmother gave me. And it wasn't just that it was comforting for me, but it was, she had given me a red one and a green one. And I always went for the red one right around that time. It was really strange. And I just started paying attention to these sort of almost natural proclivities that I would have. But I would also notice things like, 
Hmm, really, men are really checking me out when I'm at the middle of my cycle. Not so much when I'm premenstrual, it's just different. And so she started to teach me what is now becoming increasingly well-studied. Marty Hazelton, who's a researcher at UCLA, completely dedicated to studying how our behavior changes through our cycles. And she has discovered things like, or you know, based on research, she has observed things like, we are more likely to go on spending sprees premenstrually. Why is that? Well, it's really interesting because if you were living in sort of like a more indigenous tribal way, let's say you were to get pregnant mid-cycle, which is when we get pregnant, when we're ovulating. By the time you are entering into like before that premenstrual period, if you're pregnant, you won't menstruate. And the idea is that we would be biologically primed to give gifts to our partner's family as a way to endear ourselves to them. Or we have higher sense of stranger danger when we are ovulating. And the theory behind this is that we actually are more able to read other people's facial expressions. And the thought is that when we're ovulating, we're more likely to be attractive to males because that's how procreation works. And so we're more apt to be able to pay attention to which ones to avoid and which ones to trust. Not that it's a science that that keeps us safe, but it is really, really interesting. We also know that how we feel around food or exercise changes. So let's say you're trying to start a new diet or like eating healthy, even if it's not a diet, and you're trying to start like three days before your period. But now your hormones are changing and what you really want is a lot of carbs and you want chocolate and you want sugar. Not the easiest time to start a new food plan. Also, our pain threshold goes down right before our periods. So not the best time to start a high intensity workout program, but at ovulation, those are great times for it. So starting to learn just to, it's really just about listening to your body and paying attention. And of course, the more online your hormones are with that natural blueprint, the more accurate those sort of like internal messages will be. Yeah. And then like the creativity. And for me, I noticed like energy levels. So it's like, if you can map it out and understand your cycle, you can live more efficiently almost. Yeah. And like play to your best, like play to your best. You know what I mean? Like if you're, if you know that you have to write a business plan, let's, I don't know why that came to it, a business plan. And it's like three days before your period and your head's just not in the game. Well, then wait till like after your cycle, wait till you're closer to ovulation. And it's different for different people. Like if you're a poet or a creative nonfiction writer, I mean, creative fiction writer, that premenstrual period can be very rich with meaning and dreams and like emotions. So it may be a better time for you to do that. So studies have shown like our cognitive function does not go down at all just because we're premenstrual. So, I mean, I've taken medical boards on the first day of my period. It's not like you can't do it, but it's like we don't really want to do it as much. It's not wouldn't be our choice. So if you can schedule, if your cycle's regular enough that you can schedule things around it, that's amazing. So one of your chapters talks about the hidden hormone epidemic. So... I'm curious what that is and why it's hidden or considered hidden. Yeah, so I started writing this book two years before the pandemic. So originally for me, the title was 
this phenomenon was so significant that I actually thought of calling the book that, which I changed long before the pandemic. But the reality is, is that 80% of women in our lifetime will have some hormonal or gynecologic concern or problem significant enough to warrant medical attention. And that may be painful periods that are significant enough to take ibuprofen every month, PMS significant enough to go and get an antidepressant because that's a standard treatment, not because of depression, but because the chemicals in those help with some of the chemical changes premenstrually that often cause PMS or PMDD, which is a more severe form of PMS. One in six women now seeks a fertility consultation. One in eight women has polycystic ovary syndrome. One in eight to 10 women has endometriosis and the list goes on. Half of all women over 60 will have or be offered a hysterectomy at some point. So it's really significant. So, you know, obviously and necessarily so the pandemic has gotten so much attention, but actually the number of women struggling with a moderate to significant hormone problem compared to the number of women that will ever have COVID, assuming, you know, things keep getting better is way higher. And that will exist, that existed before the pandemic and will exist after the pandemic. The problem is so many of the symptoms that women experience are either chopped up to being normal. So it's considered normal to have horrible period pain every month. What's the problem? You take ibuprofen, you, you, know, you take your Motrin, you take your whatever, or you go on the pill. So many women have heavy periods. What's the big deal? Ibuprofen works for that. You're, you're a woman. It's like in my book, I say being a woman is not a diagnosis because how many things are we told are just normal because we're a woman? So that is one of the reasons that, that it's hidden we're just being told it's normal. And then we don't know that it's not normal, so we just assume we have to suck it up and live with it. Or we go to our doctor, and our doctor is not really educated about it, and just says, oh, well, that's pretty normal, but if you're uncomfortable, you can take the pill, or you can do this, or you can do this. The other thing is that so many of these topics have really been taboo. I mean, it's really quite astonishing and phenomenal that the word period was said on the stage of the Academy Awards when period, end of sentence, the movie documentary about access to menstrual products for girls in developing countries won an Academy Award. This was the first time the word period had been said in a venue like that. Or that the word vagina became something that was publicly spoken even by politicians in the previous election. It's really been so new that women are even vocal about using words like period and vagina in public, let alone talking about it. But a lot of women are still really uncomfortable talking with their physicians. And a lot of physicians don't ask, especially when it comes to problems around sexual health, pain, anything pelvic or reproductive. So there are a lot of complicated factors. There's also this really significant problem that's been well documented around gender bias in medicine and how women with pain are dismissed. And this can be whether your pain is due to a migraine, your pain is due to a heart attack, or your pain is due to endometriosis. So we know that it takes on average nine years for a woman and multiple doctors to finally get an accurate diagnosis of PCOS. We know that it takes a woman five years on average to get an autoimmune disease diagnosis, and the list goes on and on. So it stays hidden. It's not talked about. It's not recognized. It's dismissed. It's assumed to be normal, and we just keep going on and on. Because I have friends who have gone in to get hormones checked and stuff like that, like this all sounds so familiar. Like it's so hard to find someone that will be able to diagnose and actually help you. And 
What are some things that people can do to kind of advocate for themselves in those situations? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Because sometimes when I start talking about this stuff, I think, oh my gosh, I just sound so negative or so like sky is falling. But then anytime another woman is talking with me, she's like, oh my gosh, this sounds so familiar. I hear this all the time. And it it is actually kind of a hard reality. So a few things that I recommend for advocating for yourself. And remember, I am a midwife and an herbalist, but I'm saying this as a physician. And the reason I'm saying that is there are some really significant problems happening in medicine. One, a lot of doctors are seeing 30 and 40 patients a day. So we've got basically 15 minutes with you. On average, that a doctor will interrupt a patient anywhere from 90 seconds to three minutes into an appointment. So you don't have a fighting chance (laughs) unless you're like pretty confident in, in advocating for yourself. But if you're more shy or more polite, you know, you gotta get comfortable saying, this is what I'm here for. But it can be really hard to do that and feel empowered, first of all, when you are being rushed and pressured. Two, when you're wearing a gown that's flapping your butt open in the back and your doctor is there with like, you know, a nice dress or a jacket and tie and a white coat on, you know, practically tapping the face. And they're looking at the computer, not making eye contact. So some of the ways around this are one, go really prepared to your appointment. So write down, even if it's like an index card, write down like the five top things that you want to discuss or are concerned about and make sure that you have that with you. And if you're uncomfortable, say, look, I get really nervous in the doctor's office and these are really important things to me. So I'm just going to use this little cue card I have here and make sure I cover these points. And the second is don't turn, don't change into that gown when you get in the appointment, stay in your clothes, sit in the chair and you can change into the gown for the exam. It may be really uncomfortable to say that, but say it like they're not going to give you pushback and force you to take your clothes off. So nobody's going to do that. So Really, 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 we know that when doctors see the other person as a human being and not a patient, because when you're in your clothes, you maintain your personality and you maintain your confidence. When you're in that gown that looks like everyone else, you look like everyone else and you look like a sick person, not a person who is, or a vulnerable person, not a person empowered in their clothes. And it also sets a tone when you say that. So keep your clothes on and then when it's time for an exam, if an exam is necessary, just say, I'll change for the exam. Nope, happy to do that. The other thing is to bring an advocate. If you're not comfortable advocating for yourself, bring a confident friend with you. It could be your sister. I don't generally recommend your mom because often your mom's gonna be like, oh, do what the doctor says, honey, depending on who your mom is. And it could be a partner But if your partner is male and the doctor's male, sometimes they can kind of go all bro on each other, you know, like team up and that can leave you not feeling supported. So go with someone confident. And then the other thing I would say is make sure that you understand that your doctor may be feeling really burnt out, really harried, really stressed out and may actually be seeing 40 patients a day, which is a lot. And so They're probably having coffee for breakfast, grabbing something quick for lunch. And doctors are taught also that we're the ones who know and you're the one that doesn't. As much as it shouldn't be your responsibility to manage your doctor's emotions, if you want to get the care that you want and need, it does become part of the relationship. So it's reading the audience, right? And I mean, if you were to get stopped at a red light by a police officer, you probably wouldn't go all bully on the police officer. And certainly not if you're from, you know, certain demographic backgrounds, you're like gonna get in some serious situations, right? 
So we know that we have to sort of try our best to manage certain situations. And in the same way with the doctor's office, you, depending on who that person is, if you sense that they're not listening to you, if they sense that you're going to you know, you're gonna ask a question and they're going to say, where did you learn that on Dr. Google? You might want to be like, you know, I know you're really here in my best interest you know, like keep your voice calm. Like I really know that you know you went to med school. Da, da, da. This is just what I really what I want to explore. I really love these tests. Here's why. And then go to a website of someone you trust. It can be me. It can be a medical website like PubMed, and find one or two articles. And that's why, like in my medical in my articles on my website. I always put references because you can either print out my article with the references and take it with you, or you could click over to one of the articles and find the actual journal article abstract and print out two or three of those. And it's not like you're going in and saying, you know, in your face, doctor, here's, I've got the proof, but it's more like, hey, I read about this and I'd really love to have your thoughts on this. I don't know if this is something you've explored or I've read about, but I'd really love to include this as part of my care. And really saying to your doctor, you know, I'm here because of what you have, but I also want to be um, a responsible partner in my care. So I want something a little different than the traditional medical model. And I know that's a lot to take in and I, I write it all out for you all in the book. And I have like three articles on this on my website, but these can really make a difference in you getting the care that you need at an appointment and getting heard. I mean, and feeling confident to be heard in a way that you're not like bumping up against the person, but really trying to actually go for a relationship that serves you. My husband's a urologist. They're the most fun doctors in the world, by the way. I call him a pee-pee doctor. <laughs> oh my gosh. At the time I was rotating with the urologist, I had the best time. It was all guys and they called them the golden balls. <laughs> But they were so fun. They always had the best pee jokes. I'm going to tell my husband that one. Maybe he can start a club. People get referred to him from a family physician. And sometimes the patient doesn't even know why they're seeing my husband, which is, you know, like there's a lack of communication there. And the family physician is just sending them to a specialist. They don't even know why. So yeah, really understanding why you're at your appointment and what you want to get out of it. And then doing like a little debrief at the end of the appointment, like, okay, I'm getting this referral. Why? Like, what are we looking for? Like, so important. Yes. And there's so many layers to that too, Renee. It's like, we go to the doctor and we treat that relationship different than any other relationship we would have. So for example, I always say, if you were to hire a decorator, let's say you could afford a decorator and what you really like is mid-century modern. And you hire this decorator who says they can do mid-century modern, but they start showing you samples that are country French. You would never buy that furniture, I would hope, right? You would just say, yeah, no, that's not what I'm actually asking for. And if you had to say it multiple times and they were still not listening, you would realize that's not the right decorator for you. But with a doctor, we go and we have a consultation and we assume that we have to buy everything they're offering. So sometimes you go and you just get a diagnosis and then you're like, I'm not sure this is right. You go get a second opinion. It takes work, but you do it. It's worth it. Or they make a recommendation and they're like, okay, I have this horrible PMS and they're like, take the pill. And you're thinking, I don't know if I want to. You don't have to do it. You can also say, well, is there something else I can do? Or what if I wait three months? Or you know, what are my natural alternatives? And so there are a lot of times we don't ask questions. And here's part of the problem. Women who do ask 
a lot of questions or do act really confident are sometimes labeled as difficult patients. So you have to either be comfortable with that and still keep asking the questions or find the doctor who doesn't treat you that way because actually no doctor should treat you that way. But I also respect the fact that you may be on an insurance policy and that's the only doctor in your town that is covered that you can see. So then you have to, you know, negotiate essentially. But I agree. A debrief at the end is really important. Like, let me just make sure I understand you. I'm going to do a little repeat back. So you're saying that you think it's this. You're sending me to someone because of this. And then ask them to write it down in your chart. Can you please write that down in my chart for me? It's your chart. You have the right to ask. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. So another chapter that I wanted to ask you about was the sixth vital sign. So what does that mean? Did you invent this term and how is it relevant in our everyday life? So it's really interesting. Back around 2007, the American Academy of Pediatrics made a statement that a girl's menstrual cycle, young woman's menstrual cycle, is like a vital sign, a sixth vital sign. We have heart rate temperature, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and then pain is considered the fifth vital sign. So they actually coined this term and said the sixth vital sign. And then in 2013, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists reinforced that. They said, yes, this is 
really true. And what they're saying is that it's not enough to just say, oh, somebody has heavy periods or somebody has painful periods. We need to look under the hood and say, do they have endometriosis? Do they have something else going on? So that's the idea that these early symptoms that girls get or that women have during our menstrual cycles can be harbingers of underlying problems. In my worldview, I want to get under the hood and say, okay, period pain or heavy periods or whatever the symptom is can be indicative of X, Y, and Z. But what's causing X, Y, and Z? Like, let's get under the hood of that. And so for me, that's the next layer down I take it, right? Because in conventional medicine, it's beautiful. This concept of sixth vital sign is really important and really powerful because we have so many young women who suffer terribly in their teens with gynecologic symptoms and their early 20s just to basically be put on the pill or another pharmaceutical or a combination, but never to really have anybody say, hey, there's a medical problem here that could be causing long-term problems, whether that's leading to a fertility problem or a blood sugar problem that could lead to diabetes. Polycystic ovary syndrome untreated can be really serious. Endometriosis untreated can lead to some pretty significant issues. But to me, they stop at the fact of saying, all right, well, if it's polycystic ovary syndrome, let's give this and this medication for it. If it's endometriosis, let's give this medication and this surgery for it. And I'm saying, okay, guys, that's good, but let's now go... Let's go down to the basement and say, what's going on you know, below the ground floor of inflammation or microbiome disruption or environmental endocrine disruptors or stress or any of these other factors that lead to it? So I didn't make up the term. And in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics has done nothing with it to bring it into clinical medicine. Neither has ACOG. So it's just, it was an idea that came up at a conference. You hear about it now and then, but it's basically still the same old, same old, nothing's changed. But to me, it is, it's revolutionary and really should get attention. Some people say the fifth vital sign. There are a number of authors out there, Lisa Hendrickson, she's a phenomenal fertility teacher. She's got a book called The Fifth Vital Sign, which I love. And so it's not wrong. It's just that in medicine, we consider pain the fifth one. So the sixth one is really probably a little more accurate, but somewhat semantical. I like the sixth vital sign because it also, to me, reminds me of the sixth sense to like remember that our, our menstrual cycle, not the movie, the sixth sense, like our menstrual cycle is, you know, something to pay attention to. Like we were talking earlier, it's like a sixth sense an innate knowing that we can tap into. Is this common? Because I think about girls turn 16 you know, if you have a heavy period, if you have any kind of issue, or your parents just want you to be on birth control to avoid a pregnancy. So, so many of us are getting put on birth control at a really young age. And then because it's hormones that would cause these issues, we're kind of masking it for years and years and years. And then, you know, someone's 33, wants to come off birth control and get pregnant. And now that problem kind of resurfaces and there's a bigger issue. Like, does that happen often? It's like probably half my patients who are trying to get pregnant, at least, who are in that situation. And sometimes it's exactly what we were just talking about. You know, they had all these signs when they were teenagers. They had a lot of weight gain. They had cystic acne. They had some facial hairs. They had really crazy irregular periods you know, 30 days one month, 65 days the next month, 80 days the next month, 24 days the next month, all over the place. And nobody said, hey, maybe this is PCOS. Maybe we should do something about it. It's like, nope, 
take the pill, that'll fix you, that'll regulate it. And so you spend all these years having your hormone cycles suppressed, never really treating those underlying factors. And then when you come off of it, they just kind of rise right back to the surface because they were suppressed the whole time. And I'm not against the pill. I mean, I think there's a time and a place for all kinds of pharmaceuticals and surgical interventions. I just don't believe for most people, especially with most common hormone and gynae problems, that they should be the first line, right? They should be like, we've tried everything else that's pretty benign and helpful, and now we're moving up. But I see that all the time. So if somebody was, let's say they're 17, 18, they're having issues, and their family physician suggests going on the birth control, but let's say their parent is listening to this podcast. So what is something, would you ask to have hormones tested? Like what's the steps that you'd want to take before just going on the pill? Yeah, so it depends on what the symptoms are, but it could be anything from having blood sugar and insulin tested to hormones tested to, you know, somebody is is really suspecting endometriosis, it could be a laparoscopic procedure. But there's a lot that we can rule out just on the basis of symptoms. So there are actual criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. There are actual sets of symptoms for endometriosis. There are things that we know to look out for for PMS so that we don't have to do invasive procedures. But definitely talking with the physician. And if you don't get an answer that you're satisfied with, going to someone else because... As I said earlier, it can take years of going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And the problem is that these underlying issues can turn into other problems, right? So if you're 15 and you're having cystic acne and you get it taken care of then properly, then you're not 24 with cystic acne scars. Or if you are 16 and having the early signs of endometriosis and you get proper care, then you're not 36 and trying to get pregnant and having all these pelvic adhesions from the endo and scarring. So really getting onto things early would be so phenomenal and teaching our daughters how to advocate for themselves. But if they don't have the voice to at that age, which is really common, advocating for them, of course, with their permission is really important. And it doesn't mean they don't go on the pill. You know, being 15 and having cystic acne and irregular periods and trying to keep up with high school and all the emotional aspects of it that sometimes is an emotional lifesaver and it really can help with the symptoms, but we have to know what the underlying risks are. Those those drugs don't come, you know, like a free door prize. There are sometimes risks to pay. And also being on that doesn't mean now you don't do the other stuff, right? It's still, you still want to nourish your diet. You still want to make sure there's not too much inflammation. You still want to bring hormones into balance, even if you're on those things. So that's what I think the part that conventional medicine misses. It's like, it's the surgery, it's the drug, that's the answer, and then you're done. But it doesn't really work that way. A little bit about the environment and our hormones. So how does the environment contribute to our hormones being maybe out of balance? Yeah, so I think that probably what are called endocrine disruptors. So endocrine means hormone system and disruptor means it's affecting the hormone system. Endocrine disruptors are environmental chemicals that mimic in some way, usually estrogen, but it can also be testosterone, it can be thyroid hormone, and actually disrupt our own, that natural blueprint. Usually the way they work is they're stronger than our own hormones. So if you would imagine like you wanna play some nice music in your house 
and you turn the dial up to let's say three, you know, Alexa, play it at three or whatever you have. And then it goes up to three and you're getting that nice hum of hormones. Now imagine that something outside is just saying, nope, play it at 10, play it at 10, play it at 10, and you can't get it to calm down. That's what those endocrine disruptors are doing. They're binding to our own hormone receptors and overactivating them a lot of times, which is why a lot of women struggle with symptoms of excess estrogen or medical conditions that have to do with excess estrogen. So, and I really am confident, I mean, it's not like I believe this, I've studied this, it's the evidence is there, that probably the biggest two factors, well, three factors that have changed in the last 50 years since our grandmothers were, you know, having, or mothers were having their babies in 70 years since our grandmothers, are exposure to endocrine disruptors. These didn't exist prior to 70 years ago. They just, they had not been created yet. Our diets, because we know we're mostly not getting what we need in our diet, as far as like fiber and microbiome protecting foods and the range of fruits and vegetables that we need to provide vitamins and minerals. This is the Centers for Disease Control does more than study COVID. They actually study nutritional status of people around the United States. And they have found that in every single state in the United States, only 16% of people are getting the fruits and vegetables they need every day and 14% of fruits they need every day and vegetable, 14% of vegetables. So we're falling short on the nutrients we need. And then stress and lack of sleep are actually huge endocrine disruptors. So circadian rhythm disruption and all of these kind of conspire together. They all act independently, but then you add them together. It's like, what is it? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And we end up with these varying levels of hormone problems and gynecologic problems based on how susceptible you are, how much exposure you've had, and what your own genetic predispositions are. So where are these endocrine disruptors coming from? They are in everything from our plastic drinking water bottles and plastic Tupperware that we store our food in to the cosmetics that we put on our bodies to things that have fragrance and perfume, unless they're organic and natural, to our herbicides and pesticides in our food, and the list goes on and on. And you may be thinking, well, I don't get that much of this stuff. I don't get that much exposure. But if you think about hormones, they're in our circulation in like parts per million. They're teeny, 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 infinitesimal amounts. Think about the amount of like one drop of water in an entire swimming pool. That's the equivalent in your body. So it doesn't take very much exposure to these endocrine disruptors to actually significantly disrupt our hormones. And we know that they are. It's, it's so bad that at one point, one of the professors, and one of, actually was one of my professors at Yale, Hugh Taylor, who's a reproductive endocrinologist, uncovered that BPA, he was the one that figured out the BPA problem, was affecting fertility so much and it's in the receipts that you get from like the cashier at the grocery store or the pharmacy or airline tickets, mostly things that women handle, that they were banned in two states, California and Connecticut. But here's the crazy thing. When I was at Yale, I started to apply in OB-GYN and I was interviewed. This was like years before that. I was interviewed by someone in the reproductive de endocrinology department. And, I, and one of the things I said was I was really interested in studying the impact of endocrine disruptors on reproductive health. And you know what he said to me? Dr. Rom, you don't believe that BPA crap, do you? And I was like, uh, yeah, I do, and thank you very much. I don't think I want to go to residency here. 
But it was ironically in the same department a decade or more later that Hugh Taylor blew this whole thing open. You know, the data is unequivocal. It's just that, that again, we come to like biases and things not being studied in women. Most of these environmental chemicals were grandfathered in by the EPA. They were never tested. There are almost no chemicals in the market, and there are 80,000 chemicals in circulation out there that have ever been tested on women's reproductive function, which is astonishing. That's what they mimic. And they affect men, too. So it's not just women. But with us, they tend to create too much estrogen or they block our thyroid or other things. Should we be looking for cosmetics, creams that are clean? Yes, absolutely. And I know people might be listening and going, but that's so expensive. I'll say two things. One, you can get great products that are not significantly more expensive than what you'll find at the local drugstore. There are companies that are doing that. And two, it's a pay now or pay later situation. So if it costs you a dollar more for, or or, or honestly, if it costs you $10 more for lipstick, make it last longer because we are constantly licking that off our lips. If it costs you a few dollars more for a body lotion, you are putting that all over your whole body. So go for the things that are the, you know, thing. I mean, I don't think we absorb that much mascara, right? I mean, how much mascara do you really absorb? So, all right, if you can't afford the mascara, just compromise there. But don't compromise on the body lotion, the soap, the shampoo, the foundation, and anything that has a lot of fragrance in it. Because you're breathing that fragrance in, it's aerosolizing in the shower, and all of that stuff is literally these chemicals called phthalates. And look, I'm not one of these people who's like, I'm not a purist, you know, I'm not a purist when it comes to a lot of things. But when it does come to what I'm putting on or in my body, I just, I don't want to compromise because as a physician, I really see the stakes being so high. But also we know from studies, like there was this study done on teenage girls that found out, that measured their blood levels of these phthalates and then just took away plastic water bottles, plastic drinking cups, and their sunscreen. And within a week of not using those things, their phthalate levels went dramatically down. So the good news is you can have a huge influence over your hormonal health. And it's not just yours. I mean, if you're planning to have children, as women, we what's called bio-bioacute these things. And so we store them in our own bodies. And then when we're pregnant, we download them to our babies through our blood and placenta. So as much as you can do now, it's so important. And it's good for the planet, too. I remember years ago, I watched a documentary, I think it's on Netflix, called Welcome to Chemerica, and it was all about chemicals. Yeah, better living through chemistry. Yeah, I was all about like not having fragrance. And once you actually don't use that stuff for a long time, you almost can't stand the smell of it, like artificial fragrance anymore. I know. I mean, like going in an Uber, I have to roll the windows down. I can't take it or... I was on an airplane coming back from, I was traveling overseas and I had to spend hours next to this gentleman who must have just poured a bottle of cologne over himself and they wouldn't let me switch. And I'm not, I'm not chemically sensitive. I'm not like someone who's got chemical sensitivity, but I was just thinking if someone had chemical sensitivity right now, they'd be really, really, really sick. Cause I felt I had a headache. My nose was running. It was awful, but you're, you, we do actually get, we actually do get immune to smells. And so if you are wearing those things all day, you don't even notice them anymore, which is kind of scary. Yeah. My husband sat down next to me the other day and he had just put on deodorant and I was like, okay, I cannot with this smell. <laughs> like it is so strong. <laughs> don't ever wear yeah, that again. It's pretty significant. I mean, there are enough people that are chemically sensitive that even when I was in my medical training and working in the hospital, 
we were told not to wear fragrance because, you know, so many patients are sensitive to it now. And I don't think of those people as having the problem. I think of those people as the canary in the coal mine. They're the ones that are sensitive and we should be listening to them because they're like, you know, warning, 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 something's in this environment that I shouldn't be breathing in, which means probably none of us should actually. What are the top foods that are ideal for creating healthy hormones or balanced hormones in your body? Like what are your go-to foods? Yeah. So for me, I think, first of all, lots and lots of vegetables, you know, six to eight servings a day, at least. If you can go to eight to 10, great. And include leafy greens like kale, collards, broccoli, Napa cabbage, all of that brassicaceae family is so good for helping our bodies break down and eliminate hormones. And they also provide fiber, which keeps us eliminating through our bowels, which is actually really important for hormone health too. Fish, if you're willing to eat fish a couple of few times a week, a good fatty fish like salmon, sardines, the really good essential EFA rich fish. And if you're not sure which those are, because you want to avoid the ones that are high in mercury, go to the environmental working group, ewg.org. When it comes to those fruits and vegetables, ditto, because you want to get as much as you can afford to organic, but the EWG, Environmental Working Group, has something called the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. They update it every year, totally free. Just go there, look for Clean 15, Dirty Dozen, and that'll pull up the list of those fruits and vegetables that are really safe to eat, even if they're not organic, and the ones that you want to avoid because they're the most contaminated if they aren't organic. And then the third thing I would say, I think berries are incredible. And there's so many things that you could pick from, you know, avocados, fat, nuts and seeds, really, really important. Berries are great because they provide these chemicals that our bodies need called phytochemicals that really help fight inflammation, help to regulate our blood sugar and they're delicious. And then of course, what kind of woman's doctor would I be if I didn't throw in some dark chocolate? Because (laughs) of course. Yeah, we need that. My son is... He's a berry monster. And I'm like, oh, well, like, you know, if he doesn't eat his dinner and he wants berries, I'm like, it could be worse. (laughs) I love them. I can remember, too, my kids being really, really little and just eating blueberries. And then their poops had the, you know, like blue poops. And like the first time time I ever saw that, I was like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, shocking. (sighs) The last question I have for you is what are the most common hormone imbalance issues that you see in your practice? Yeah, I mean, probably the ones that I've mentioned, I would say PMS is a huge one, acne, hormonal acne, hormonal migraines are one that I didn't mention, polycystic ovary syndrome, fertility challenges, endometriosis, which is hormonal and immunologic, fibroids, menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, low libido. These are some of the big ones I see. And low libido, that could be in non-menopausal women too. It can be in, in women in their 20s. Pelvic pain, I see a lot. Sleep and thyroid problems. When people come to you, do they know that they have a hormone issue or are they just coming with the symptoms? Yeah, I mean, it goes both ways. A lot of times I've had women who, well, it kind of like we say three things. Women who have been seeking a diagnosis but can't get it and suspect something's going on. Women who have an inkling that it's something to do with their hormones, but they're not sure. And women who have had a diagnosis but are wanting something different than just the pill or another hormonal medication or an antidepressant or something like that. So that's kind of the constellation. I think most women now, especially women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, are pretty internet savvy. And there's so much you can find out there now that I think a lot of people come with an inkling. I think this might be a thyroid problem. I think this might be PCOS, but my doctor won't test me or my doctor thinks it's not. And I just wanted to know. 
And so being a herbalist as well as a physician, do you tend to treat things both from a medical perspective, but also holistic perspective? Yeah, I'm all, I'm like, everything I do is holistic. So I only prescribe pharmaceuticals if I really, really need to. And surgeries, I always go, my order is like food and mind, body, herbs and supplements, testing if needed, of course, and then giving those a healthy amount of time, unless something is obviously more urgent or obviously needs pharmaceuticals. There are certain things I wouldn't treat, but I mean, like my go-tos are botanicals and, and food and nutrients and stress reduction and sleep support. I have one more quick question. What are your top supplements for women? Based on what I was saying to you earlier about most women not getting the amount of fruits and vegetables we need every day and ditto that with essential fatty acids and vitamin D. I'm not like, I think medicine is a pill for every ill, but I think like integrative functional medicine can become like a supplement for every symptom. So I'm not huge at just jumping on the supplements, but I do really recommend women take a multivitamin mineral supplement every day vitamin D, like 2,000 units every day. Most women are low in magnesium and feel better when they get a little bit extra and sleep better and poop better when they get a little extra. So usually like five milligrams of magnesium a day. And then if they don't eat fish, a fish oil or an algae-based vegan version. And then some people do well with a probiotic, but always like the multi, the vitamin D and a fish oil or some equivalent are kind of like the core. And then it gets to, you know, what's going on and what symptoms. So like ginger is phenomenal for period pain. Vitex, chaseberry is great for irregular periods. Flax seeds are, are great for women for fiber, but also to help balance estrogen and progesterone. So there's so many. And then flax seeds you just put right in your food. Oh, I'm on a hemp hearts kick right now. I just put it on oh, everything. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was such a great conversation. I feel like I could talk to you forever and just pick your brain, but <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, of course. So where can people find you online? What kind of resources do you offer on your website? And when is your book out already? Or is it pre order? Yeah, so it's available for pre order, which if you want to go, you can buy the book anywhere and then go to avivaram.com forward slash book b o o k and you'll find some amazing bonus offers. In fact, through June 8th, there is a 28 day gut reset, which is an incredible program that's totally free if you pre-order the book. Then June 8th, it goes on official sale. The resources, I have so many free resources over at my website. I'm People call me the content machine. So I, my friends call me that. So I have so many articles, eBooks, all like tons of free stuff over at avivaram.com. And then I hang out on my Instagram page too. So Dr. Dr. Avivaram, Dr. Period Avivaram on Instagram. Those are all the places you can find me. And I've on Instagram, I have IGTVs and reels that are fun and stories. And then, yeah, and then a growing library of courses over at my website too. Awesome. I always make fun little promo videos and stuff. So I'll tag your Instagram account so people can find you. And I'm going to put all your information in the episode notes as well. Thank you. So appreciated. So nice to talk with you, everybody. Yes, you too. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Are you looking for a podcast that'll make you laugh? You came to the wrong place. That's not us. That's not us. <laughs>
Well, it is. We are a husband and wife who chat about raw, real relationship yeah, topics. like sex. Like money. Like marriage and kids. But we're not afraid to talk about how your newborn baby probably isn't as cute as you think it is. If you're in need of entertainment while you're driving to work, because that sucks, we can join you in the suckage, kind of like being in your ear. Not physically. So if you want to laugh, come check us come out. Come check us out. Brought to you by the Laughing Couple Podcast. Ha, <laughs> ha,